COVID-19 virtually overnight changed the tone, tenor, and texture of cities, bringing the global economy to a slow grind and forcing people to retreat into bubbles, silos, pods, and remote work connected mainly through social media and Zoom. Now, as we slowly start to get a grip on the virus and think about reopening society, what will the long-term impact of the pandemic be on cities and on the evolution of smart cities? Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia. My guest today has some of those answers. He's Michael Proman, Managing Director at Scrum Ventures, an early stage venture fund that has invested in more than 80 startups across a range of industries in the US and Japan. Proman worked in global marketing and development at Coca-Cola and the National Basketball Association prior to starting and ultimately exiting his initial startup, Optionit. He has helped lead multiple startups to acquisitions and continues to play an active role in mentoring and advising founders across multiple industries. Proman also is a contributor to TechCrunch and his most recent piece is titled, Will COVID-19 Spur a Smart Rebirth for Cities? Mike, welcome to Techtopia. Chitra, thanks for having me. So when COVID-19 hit, you know, we saw this incredible change across major metropolitan cities, such as New York, you know, reeling from the impact, real estate values going down and commerce grinding to a halt, people scrambling indoors. As someone who specializes in the future of cities and so-called smart cities, I'm sure you were watching with both interest and some concern about what the future would bring. What were your thoughts as you saw all of this unfold? Well, I think like everybody, I, I think the immediate thought is, oh, oh my goodness, right? Um, the world is is coming to a grinding halt. And, you know, I've been working in a remote environment for 12 plus years. Uh, so the idea of transitioning my work into kind of this virtual bubble of Zoom and, and Microsoft Teams and, and all these other virtual channels, that didn't really phase me personally. But of course, a lot of my colleagues who are, are based in the Bay Area, um, you know, they're in the epicenter of, of some of the, the transformation taking place in some of these urban communities. Having lived in places like New York previously and having friends still there, uh, I can understand and certainly empathize with, with kind of both local businesses that were facing, um, you know, arguably some, some of the, the darkest days that they've ever had. Um, so I think there was kind of this collective sense of, yeah, this is going to be rough, but let's figure this out. Um, and I think people just kind of dug in and, and uh, you know, it's pretty amazing the progress that has been made here in the last 12 or 14 months. So over the past uh, year and a half, what was the, the biggest change that surprised you perhaps or even shocked you? What, what were you seeing that you didn't expect? Yeah, well, I think this was to me a unified effort, right, of, of public sector, private you know, you have innovators, whether it be in the pharmaceutical industry, of course, kind of getting us to where we need to be on, on vaccines. I think everybody just kind of grabbed an oar, so to speak, right? And and I think the thing that surprised me the most, and uh, through Smart City X, which is a, a big initiative that I uh, oversee within Scrum, uh, we work with a lot of municipal leaders. And I think everyone's first kind of reaction to government or public sector and municipalities is that, you know, they're slow, bureaucratic, and can't get things done. Um, and I was, inc I, I wouldn't say shocked, but I was, uh, I think, just as surprised as a lot of folks that that wasn't the case here. I think people really said, you know what, we're going to reinvent and redefine how it is we do things. Um, we're surrounded by a lot of the best municipal leaders within Smart City X, 
And just kind of getting that front row seat from them has been eye-opening for me uh, to see how cities have really uh, kind of, uh, you know, taken a, a much more proactive stance um, in, in, in kind of getting us back to where we need to be. And what is Smart City X? Yeah, great question. So at Scrum, we work with startups, right? We invest in startups. Uh, and Smart City X is, I wouldn't call it an accelerator per se, right? Um, it is a community of what we would consider best in class stage agnostic startups. Uh, in the case of, of what we're kind of aiming at, we, we look at six core pillars within Smart City, right? There's consumer products and services, there's mobility, there's smart buildings and infrastructure, there's energy resources and sustainability, um, connectivity, um, and then the last piece is, is what we call social innovation, right? So technologies that make cities uh, more equitable, uh, more diverse, more inclusive. And, and so in defining those six core categories, those buckets, we're able to go out and curate startups from around the world that speak to the needs that cities have. And what's in it for the startups, right? It's, it's not this blocking and tackling kind of uh, association for like an accelerator would be. It's about aligning and, and connecting them to top line growth opportunities, right? That's what startups need. They need to be able to uh, demonstrate uh, the product market fit. They need to be able to sign POCs. Uh, and in our case, the, the partners that we're primarily uh, looking to engage with are all a lot of Japanese corporates. Um, that's an interesting piece of our DNA at Scrum, right? Is that we're a, a venture capital firm and a lot of our LPs are large Japanese corporations. Uh, we know that we can do more than just help, you know, invest their money wisely. Um, we can also support them on a day-to-day -day level. Um, we can help them address, you know, opportunities or pain points in their business. Uh, and so when it comes to things like smart cities, um, there's no shortages of great companies that we're working with in Japan. And again, helping introduce them to breakthrough technologies from around the world. That's really the aim of this program. Um, for us, right, this is, unlike an accelerator, we're not taking equity from these startups for participation. We are doing this uh, because of two things. Number one, uh, our, our Japanese corporate partners are, are very uh, meaningful to us. We want to maintain strong relationships and bonds just based on our kind of business model. Uh, and, and then secondly, and self-servingly, of course, you know, our goal is always to help startups and get to know them. Because at the end of the day, we're always kind of out there from a recruitment and pipeline perspective, looking for the best next thing to invest in. And these programs like Smart City X give us uh, a really deep look under the hood at the types of innovation and technology taking place in the space, and in many cases, lead us to our next investments. And we're going to talk about sort of those buckets that you mentioned, but but I guess uh, just for people who are curious, one, why Japan? I mean, is it because the, a serendipitous relationship that existed, or is it because that Japan is sort of leading the front in some way on smart cities, or both? Well, I think it, it, it's not just smart city with Japan. Um, when you ask that question, I would probably take a step back and say, you know, at Scrum, um, our DNA is, is heavily Japanese. And, and it's that way because our general partner, our founder, Tak Miyata, uh, very well-established, very successful Japanese entrepreneur, um, has those relationships in place, obviously within the corporate sector and beyond. Um, so that's always kind of been 
uh, our first and, and primary approach uh, from a beneficiary standpoint. Um, that being said, uh, we know that we're not necessarily just looking to invest in Japanese um, startups. Uh, it, in fact, it's the exact opposite. We're, we're probably taking a, a much more global and North American viewpoint. Um, and then, you know, looking to engage uh, not just on the cap table, but also be a strategic partner, um, helping them break into what is, you know, is probably a very relationship centric region and market. Uh, and, and so if we can be that gateway for those startups, if we can provide value in ways that others can't, that's a nice competitive differentiator, right? Um, our ability to to play a, a role and, and have some real purpose uh, in the investment, uh, those are always uh, obviously at the, at the top of mind uh, when we think about uh, our, our pipeline. Great. And so going back to sort of the impact of COVID-19 on cities and, and how cities are coming out from under the weight of the pandemic and reinventing themselves, you recently conducted a survey of industry experts to see where we are heading. Tell us a little bit about that survey and who took part and, and what you have found is, is happening on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what was interesting is we have uh, these programs, Smart City X, and, and something I, I neglected to mention in the, in the beginning here is that it's not just about corporates and startups. Um, in all of the work that we do, whether it's Smart City, whether it be food tech, whether it be sports tech, and all these other verticals that we've worked in, we like to surround these programs with what we would consider as kind of industry experts or thought leaders somewhat akin, I would say, to a mentor, right, in, in an accelerator. The difference here is that we are trying to, uh, we're not looking to engage these, these leadership circle members or what you could refer to as mentor, mentors in this kind of one-way street. We want to create an opportunity for them uh, in many respects to find the next you know, great opportunity, um, just as much as our corporates are looking to engage, if that makes sense, right? So it's, in some cases, it's very two-way. It's very kind of, uh, I would say, self-serving uh, for everybody involved. We want to create some self-interest because I think when you have that, um, you, you have the best conversations. They're, they're much more authentic. Um, they become more actionable. Uh, and so what's great about this leadership circle, it, we have over 60 um, global thought leaders in the smart city space is that we can also, um, you know, kind of tap into them for insights and knowledge. So earlier this year, we conducted a survey, as you alluded to, to this group uh, of individuals. Uh, we were able to really extract kind of where their head was at as far as both the pandemic, the impact that it's had on urban communities and beyond. And what we found, again, not probably um, too uh, earth shattering here, you could say, um, it, it is that there is a lot of vibrancy, right? There's a lot of optimism. Um, and, you know, we, we, when we look back and we say, okay, is it coming from the private sector exclusively? Is it municipalities? Is it academia? Um, is it, you know, even startups? Um, it's, it's broad-based. Um, so we asked all different types of questions, right? What's driving the change in cities? Will data make an impact? And again, the, the, the surveys uh, and all kind of came back with a common theme. I'll, you know, one of the, the kind of, I would say, a more or less a microcosm of this 
uh, a woman, a uh, member of our leadership circle, Anna Sandquist, who's a merchant director of the Connected Home and Connected Car Group at Best Spot, right? So she's kind of in the epicenter of this. It's kind of the, the impact that it's had on Wi-Fi connectivity, right? Tech infrastructure. Um, these are all kind of at the top of the list, I would say, in terms of some of the trends that we're seeing. Um, people are thinking about their homes um, and, and kind of places of, of, um, of, of high uh, dense activity um, as these hubs, right? And it's not just fitness and work, but how do we really build around that in, in, in innovative ways? So what, what, what do you see happening? How, what do you see evolving? How will the home change? Because as more and more people work from home, will office buildings in big cities get filled up again? What's the vision? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always a play to have people come together and collaborate. And, and people are just tribal beings, right? They, they need to be surrounded with people who kind of share certain uh, areas of, of interest and opportunity. Um, so I don't think that goes away entirely, but I think we're going to go much more into that omni-channel experience, right? You could say for work, um, where there is a heavy dose of, of digital, where FaceTime doesn't really um, you know, qualify itself anymore. And then with respect to, to kind of you know, virtual work, I, I think you know, for me personally, I, I, as I said, I've been doing this for 12 plus years before the pandemic. And I think there were a lot of people who questioned, um, you know, what does Mike actually do all day? You know, does he actually work? And, and I think if there has been one, um, you know, silver lining and uh, a very dark cloud here uh, is that the pandemic has really kind of uh, almost recentered people a, a little bit and understood that, that you know, um, virtual work is work. People can get a lot accomplished, as, as you have been able to do personally um, in this, you know, 12, 15 month span. Um, so uh, I, I don't think it's going away. I, I, and in fact, I think it's going to influence the way in which people choose to live, where they choose to live, um, how they use, you know, want to surround themselves with technology. I mean, you talk to, to uh, home builders, right? It's interesting now the questions that home builders are getting asked, right? Can I get a nine foot ceiling so I can get a treadmill put in? Um, can I get an office um, instead of that kind of nursery or third bedroom, right? Um, it, you know, that's kind of the progression in, in terms of where we're at, you know, commuting times. I, I think people used to really, you know, stress about the ability to, oh, I got to be, you know, commuting for 45, 50 minutes a day, each way, two ways. Um, you know, now if I can work from home two or three days a week, I don't care about driving 40 miles into an office a few days of the week. And so I can live further away. Uh, does that hurt cities? No, I don't think it does because I think cities will always be vibrant. Um, they will do, you know, they're not going away. They're not dead. It's very similar in some respects to kind of the shopping mall. Um, it's not, um, you know, on its last life, it's just evolving. Um, and I think the way in which cities are, are going to be forced to engage with people, um, you have to rethink that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much like you. I've worked from home for the past dozen years, and so literally, COVID changed very little for me. I'm, you know, I work. I have multiple like office spaces all over the house. Yeah, but totally. I think the the future of the house, you know, as I see myself working in different enclaves of my house, and I have like a studio space and I have an office space. I think the future of the house is going to change. I think because we were kind of an anomaly, right? We work in Silicon Valley and we work remote, but 
I would imagine for the majority of the population that's been going into work, the, the, the shape and design and imagination of the home is going to change. And you're probably seeing that already. Uh, very much so, right? And, and you know, having lived in a variety of environments, right? I mean, it's all about kind of the stage of life, of course. Um, you know, when I'm in my early mid-20s and I'm living in New York, uh, at the time, it, uh, it was in a, a 450 square foot alcove studio apartment. And, and that was fine, right? Because how much time do you actually spend in your place when you live in a city like that and when you're at that age? Um, and, and the reality is, um, I couldn't even envision doing that for over a year, right? Of just being kind of more or less a, a house arrest in, in that type of an environment. And there were people who did go through that. So I'm, I'm very kind of fortunate and lucky uh, in so many ways that I had the space that I've, I've been able to adapt to this, this pandemic in ways that other people just haven't been able to. And, and that's caused a lot of other issues, as, as you know, um, you know, whether it be mental health, whether it be physical health or otherwise, um, I think people are ready to um, figure out kind of what that next chapter looks like and, uh, and, and know that there can be and that can evolve and change uh, as things move forward. Yeah, I know you said, you know, the cities will always be vibrant, but I wonder, you know, there's all of this real estate, right, that emptied out during COVID. Mm -hmm. And is that all going to fill back up? Or if remote is a big part of how companies rethink how they do business, what happens to all of that space? How does, uh, how do cities reimagine their, their, their work, their real estate space? Well, it's going to take time. I, I live in, in the Twin Cities here in, in Minneapolis, and, and one of the biggest employers in, in downtown is, is Target Corporation, right? And, and Target said about a, a month ago, you know, we're going to give up uh, a, a large chunk of our downtown real estate. And, and the building in which they're, they're vacating, that's going to suffer, right? The, everyone's going to suffer. It's, it's going to be the shops, the vendors, everybody over there. Um, at the same time, that building, you know, it, it, it might be the kick in the in the backside that they've needed for years to really reinvent and really think more about long term what we want this space to to kind of embody and, and envision. Is this turn into potentially housing? Does it turn into retail? Does it turn into uh, fitness or any type of other kind of communal um, facility? Right. Um, or is it office space? And, and instead of, you know, having numerous floors owned by one company, is it, you know, uh, the ability to kind of partition that off and, and break it up? Because at, at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, people are giving up office space. There's no question about it. People are downsizing. But what downsizing also incorporates is you can kind of, you know, reconfigure spaces to uh, accommodate those trends. Um, and so, you know, the good news is, People that are much smarter than me, which is quite a few people, um, <laughs> will uh, will we'll certainly figure this out. Um, there's too much at stake here, and I think municipal leaders understand that if they aren't trying to help solve this problem, it's not going to just you know fall onto one audience because everyone's going to suffer. So I think everybody is united in in, in you know solving these types of issues. Um, so, but uh, I think, again, the, the vibrancy of, of these urban communities is what is it driven by? It's driven by a lot of the, the, the socialization. Um, so that's bars and restaurants, it's sports venues and, and concert facilities, right? So, so making sure those um, attractions are able to kind of <laughs> reopen and be the catalyst to bring people back. I think that there's no question um, that that's a positive uh, for urban communities. 
It was an article in the New York Times, and I know I saw you had commented on that too on LinkedIn, on how some cities are on a fast track to recovery and others aren't. Tell us which cities are on the fast track and what, what allows them to recover at a faster pace than other cities. Yeah, I think the comment I, I posted was, was really kind of drawing the analogy to, to the stock market, right? And when you have a recession, what are the types of companies that seem to bounce back faster? And those are, are traditionally small caps, right? It's the the Russell 2000, the Russell 5000, right? It's the, it's the ones that are more nimble, the ones that are able to, to pivot and, and be more agile. And I think that's directly correlated here on, on the urban side too, right? The New York's, LA's, San Francisco's, Houston's of the world, it, it, it may take some time, right? I mean, these are these are legacy cities, um, obviously, there's a, no shortages of, of, of innovative um, personnel um, and, and companies and, and leaders. Um, and, and so I'm not saying that they're, they're dinosaurs, or, or, but, but you know, the cities that, that you know, may not be as large, that aren't as reliant on you know, numerous stakeholders or audiences, those are the ones who might be able to solve this a little bit faster. So, you know, look at a, a Madison, Wisconsin, right? Or, or uh, a Kansas City, Missouri, right? You know, even in Austin, Texas, not probably in that top tier, but ones that tend to probably skew uh, uh, north on the innovation kind of um, equilibrium. Uh, and at the same time, uh, have accomplished leaders, um, you know, solid corporations. Uh, that's where I would put my money, right? But it's not a race, right? I mean, in some respect, you're right, it is. But, you know, we want to get it right. And, and even if that requires taking time in, in, in kind of bigger, um, more potentially bureaucratic markets, uh, you know, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> At the end of the day, I, I think we're all moving in the right direction. It's just about kind of who's going to get there, you know, six or 12 months faster. If you're investing in the long term, it's negligible. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when we talk about humans, people bouncing back from adversity, we talk about the importance of resilience. And I wonder if cities also have to start to build more, more resilience into their fabric uh, and maybe cities that are more resilient and maybe technology, you know, cities that are more tech friendly have more resilience. I don't know the answer. Do you think that has something to do with it? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, going back to the survey, I think the the, the biggest impact in the coming year uh, people would talk about is, is smart data, right? And, and that cities have access to this data and that you're able to democratize the data and the data set, um, you know? And, and I think sadly, there are a lot of municipalities that were kind of making decisions with, with, without data for, for way too long. And so hopefully um, as you, you know, budgets are, are, are uh, enable it, um, they're able to make smarter decisions based on the, the, the data set that they have in front of them. I talked to a lot of municipal leaders, there's one in particular, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jordan Sun, who's phenomenal. He's the chief innovation officer of the city of San Jose. Um, you talk about kind of <laughs> a high pressure job, right? I mean, you're, you're, it's, when you when when that's your title in a, in a market that that produces probably some of the the, the most innovative technologies in the world, uh, you better be on your game. Uh, and, and and Jordan is beyond his, you know uh, most people and as it relates to to, to technology and innovation. So uh, they, they definitely got the right person in charge. But it, again, it's it, it's about you know digging deep. It's about you know establishing. 
um, a great dialogue between municipalities and corporations um, and, and figuring out how to best attack these things in a way that, that kind of removes the silos. Again, we're all fighting the same thing here, right? And and that's the that's the nice thing, maybe if anything, is that COVID has unified us in ways that we probably um, we weren't unified before, uh, in some respect, right? And and you know everyone can agree that cities can do more. I, I know we talked about before the need for cities to to become more equitable and use this opportunity to be able to deploy technologies to to underserved or marginalized communities, uh, areas that you know, pre-pandemic, um, we're not probably seen as the primary beneficiary for technology and, and saying, okay, if, again, if there are positives to come from this is how do we deploy technology to those communities, to those areas um, in a way that, that makes sense and that will not produce kind of these generational inequities um, that we were essentially, we were, on a, we were on a status quo path towards. So to me, that's a good thing. So I want to talk a little bit now about smart cities in particular. I mean, we talk generally about cities and and bouncing back from COVID-19, but I want to talk about whether it has also changed people's vision of how smart cities evolve. But before we do that, for for the lay person, you know, what exactly is a smart city? I mean, we know about smart homes in general, but what what's the vision of a smart city and a definition? Well, I, you know, it's that's a great question, right? And And I think, you know, my belief is that the idea of calling something smart city technology, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, you're asking somebody is it's like watching an episode of the Jetsons too, with like flying cars or something like that. And, and somebody could give you that definition, of course, to me, that that has nothing to do with kind of the new and improved um, way in which we, we think about cities. Uh, to me, it's about, um, you know, technologies that uh, enable people to live, you know, healthy, more meaningful lives. Cities to to be in diverse and inclusive and, and and equitable, and that to me is the essence of a smart city, right? And in maybe the the, the 2021 definition. Uh, and, and so, yeah, will that encompass things like flying taxis? Yeah, maybe. But I think we we kind of want to take a much more kind of practical um, definition and saying, okay. When we're thinking about infrastructure, when we're thinking about mobility, when we're thinking about products and services or sustainability, how are, what what is it problem we're trying to solve? How can we best deploy this in a way that serves the greater good uh, and does so in a way that that doesn't kind of pick and choose winners? Uh, because I think in the past, smart cities, so to speak, were able to deploy technology with sensors or IOT and connected devices, right? But it wasn't really, you know, broad. It was a very narrow scope of work. Uh, and there were certainly, again, kind of that barbell effect of winners and losers being achieved or attributed to that. To me, that's the, the, the main kind of change that has occurred here. Uh, as we think about smart cities as, as, you know, how do we define them uh, moving forward? Uh, I think that holds true both here domestically in the U.S. as well as around the world. Um, but probably more of a heightened emphasis today um, here in North America, um, just given some of the, uh, the the social challenges that have emerged in the last 12 months uh, in parallel with the pandemic. So is it not technology driven or is it getting technology access to people in underserved areas? I, I guess, what's the difference? Well, it's a people first approach, I think is the number one thing, right? And, and, and people 
come from all walks of life, but I, I, I think it's, it's probably a little bit more the latter of what you just mentioned, right? It's about democratizing technology. Uh, it's about giving people access to it uh, in ways that they haven't been able to be the beneficiary previously. You know, it's about putting public transportation into areas and investing in that transportation from a technology standpoint. Um, it's about rethinking uh, building infrastructure um, you know, it could be low-income housing. Uh, it could be how we um, build infrastructure and where we build infrastructure in, in, in some respect. Uh, so I, I do think um, within urban communities in particular, uh, it, it is going to, probably the conversation is going to start of, you know, the, the more of the, not the, the what, but that how are we going to do this? And how are we going to do this in a, in a way that impacts um, the most people uh, and, and doesn't kind of, uh, again, look at, at, at people by way of tax brackets, um, but looks at them as people uh, and what they need. But if you look at low in, low income housing, for instance, what would make it a smart city low income housing as opposed to regular low income housing? Is it just that you're bringing tech, better materials, data driven, you know, IoT driven? Yeah, it really goes with data, right? I mean, you can you can build materials. I think are, are negligible when you start talking about low income housing, right? I mean, it, it's the same material that you would use in a you know a high rise condo building, right? Um, at the same time, I think to me, it's about less of the hardware and more of the software and, and the capabilities that surround that infrastructure, right? Is it access to um, fresh and, and and healthy foods? Um, so is there kind of a component there and, and what does that look like from a technology standpoint? What's enabling that? Is there, um, access to, um, affordable mobility solutions, right? Whether it be things like light rail, clean energy and busing, those types of, of, of technologies, uh, as well. So, uh, you know, it's, it is a, it's, a, it's a tough, you know, kind of way to think about it, right? And urban leaders have been trying to, to think about this for, for decades, um, but I think now more than ever, we're thinking about technology as let's not just build the low-income housing you know, unit, but let's make sure it's going to be sustainable and successful. And to do that, we need to kind of plug in the latest and greatest um, as it relates to IoT, as it relates to data-driven um, capabilities um, and access to you know, technologies that, that make people's lives better on a day-to-day -day level. It's really interesting, you know, I've been talking to other people about the same thing is that, you know, you not only just had COVID, but you had all of these uh, social issues uh, over the past year and over race and and gender and economics. And so now you've, you're, you're, it's almost like when you build the smart city of the future, there's that element of co social conscience that's being built into it. And, and, and I see that in other areas as well. Very much so. I mean, I think, you know, people are taking a hard look right now uh, as they make decisions of, you know, asking the question, who's missing? You know, I think it's a question we all should be asking, whether it's at, you know, uh, just a, a weekly meeting or, or we're trying to make decisions on things. Uh, how do we ascertain kind of a diverse perspective and viewpoint um, that, that, that to me has been one of the biggest wins, right, is, is that people are asking those questions now. Uh, I think now more than ever, whether it be board representation, whether it be, um, you know, uh, the, the abundance or kind of the growth in 
um, diversity and inclusion officers, right? Within not just corporations now, within startups, within VCs, um, you know, seeing hopefully, um, you know, a, a trend here in, in venture capital of investing in minority founders um, that have kind of been uh, underinvested, so to speak, uh, for way too long. So, um, you know, these are all positive steps. But again, is this, you know, you hope that this is fixture, not fad. Um, and, and I think the, the same holds true for, or, you know, urban development and, and smart city technology is that, you know, is this just kind of an artificial high and we're going to go back to kind of status quo when things hopefully get to a more normal level or what was presumed to be normal? We need to ensure that our leaders kind of continue to hold us to high standards. Everybody's accountable. And when it comes to tech and technology being deployed, um, I, I, again, I, I hope we're continuing to ask those same questions that we have been the last few months. You've talked about the importance of infrastructure uh, and infrastructure funds, right? And uh, the the um, the role of critical infrastructure and smart infrastructure that's going to uh, help uh, cities recover from the pandemic. Does the Biden administration and its you know huge stimulus package and infrastructure package focusing enough on this notion of smart cities and how to use infrastructure to build smart cities in a way that represents the the future? Yeah, I think infrastructure, right? I mean that you can talk about building materials, right? That are you know probably more eco friendly, right? And it's very hard. Or you can talk about kind of again more of the the technology or the software components that go into these um, the, these projects or, or venues or, or you know in some cases residential units, um, you know I, 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 there a lot was made of of the infrastructure bill that was recently passed. I, I think you know it's a very it's always going to be a partisan debate. It's been everything these days is no <laughs> nobody can agree on anything. Um, but I think you, you know just my, my my one kind of takeaway here is just give it time, right? I mean. You know, we're we're kind of a country and and a culture. I feel of like everyone wants instant gratification, right? <laughs> and um, unfortunately, that's just not the way the way these things work. I mean, you you invest long term, but long term politically is as you know is you know the political cycles every it seems like you know every three months we're talking about the next election cycle, right? And, and so and everybody's trying to position themselves for that versus think kind of more holistically and on a long-term basis. So, uh, you know, hopefully that's where there's a, a balancing act between the public and private sector of, you know, our, our politicians may change every two or four years, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that that some of the biggest players in, in, you know, infrastructure development are going to be generational and beyond. Um, and so, uh, my hope is that you know we can take our lead in, in certain situations from the private sector that are reacting, of course, to the legislation that is being passed, but still kind of have their heads down and, and understand what their five, ten, and beyond year plans look like, um, because that's really going to get us to where we want to be. Great, thanks, Mike. Do you have any other closing thoughts on your vision for uh, the smart city and smart society of the future, or any example of anyone who's doing it better than anybody else that uh, could be seen as a model for the future? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I, I love to travel. Um, unfortunately, like everyone, uh, that hasn't really uh, occurred here recently. I I think part of the travel I like to do is on a global level and, and for that exact same purpose, right? It's, it's about discovery, fact-finding, 
I'm excited when when you know it's it's safe and and you know accessible is to kind of to go on on kind of a global road trip and 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 kind of have that exact same conversation because it would be I think irresponsible of me to just say they're doing it well they're doing it best because so much has changed and I haven't personally been able to go out and see um, some of the, the the best practices in motion. Um, I, I, you know, there are regions within Europe, there are certainly areas within Asia and beyond, and even in, um, you know, developing countries um, that have figured out how to solve challenges in ways that, sadly, you know, one of the, the, the wealthiest countries in the world still struggle at. And, and so that, to me, is the essence of, of what we're trying to build here with Smart City X and beyond is this is a diverse, very global approach. Um, while we're certainly skewed and biased based on our kind of North American base, it doesn't um, preclude us from from surrounding um, the program with with great leaders and, and people um, from other geographies and uh, that, that we can learn from. And so, again, when when the coast is clear and uh, I'm excited to get back out there and, and really kind of rediscover um, that exact uh, question is, is, is who's doing it best. So hopefully we can uh, we can chat a little bit more about this in the coming weeks and months. Yes, definitely would love to have you back on as you start to, you know, get back on the road and, and see some of these things. Yeah, no, it'd be lovely. So, well, thank you again. Yes, thank you for joining us today and for the great conversation. Uh, my pleasure. Michael Proman is Managing Director at Scrum Ventures, an early stage venture firm that has invested in more than 80 startups across a range of industries in the U.S. and Japan. Proman worked in global marketing and development at Coca-Cola and the National Basketball Association prior to starting and ultimately exiting his initial startup, Optionit. He has helped lead multiple startups to acquisitions and continues to play an active role in mentoring and advising founders across multiple industries. Proman is a contributor to TechCrunch, and his most recent piece is titled, Will COVID-19 Spur a Smart Rebirth for Societies? So check it out. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.